0: Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. A guy named Sammy Rhodes um, is actually a fellow campus minister, R.E.F. campus minister uh, at South Carolina. Um, But he had a little snafu uh, a few years back on Twitter. He got into it uh, with some people on Twitter. And he went on to write an an article about it called Tweeting Myself to Death. And in that article, uh, in his blog post, Tweeting Myself to Death, he quoted a book that I had not heard of called Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. And one of the characters in that book says this. When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Sammy went on to apply that quote to his own life and he said, our stories are often not as neat as we would like them to be, because we ourselves are messy. I think that's so true, because it's defining hard truth of life, that we, every single one of us, are messy broken people and so our stories by definition are also going to be messy and broken our lives are messy and broken there's nothing that the messiness and the brokenness that we all own and possess uh, there's nothing in our lives that it doesn't touch when you come to exodus chapter 12 and, and really the whole plague account but especially here as we look at this last plague tonight we have a messy story it's a story of blood Right? And like blood does to most people, it's unsettling. It's an unsettling story. What do we do with the mess- messiness of the story? That God himself comes down. God himself comes down and strikes down the firstborn children of all the Egyptian households. That's what this story is about. And the only thing that saves Israel, his own people, is the death and the blood Of a lamb. What are we going to do with a story like this? And if that's not unsettling enough, this goes on to be the defining ritual of the Jewish religion. And then later on, albeit in a different, transformed manner, it also sort of becomes the the, one of the defining rituals of Christianity as well in the Lord's Supper so we're struck with this truth from the outset that we are messy and broken and we have a God who has chosen of his own will to love messy and broken people. So how do we get past, as that quote from that book said, how do we get past the confusion, the dark roaring, the wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood and blood? Well, there's actually the key. And that's what I want to look at tonight. Because it is all about the blood. All of it. It's about the blood. So let's look at this. Three things here about the blood. The history of the blood, the meaning of the blood, and the future of the blood. So the first thing I want to look at is the history... Of the blood, and this story, you know, as Exodus chapter twelve reads, the story is pretty straightforward uh, on the details that God's going to execute this final plague Himself, and there's only one thing that will protect you: the blood of a lamb. The one of the meekest, at least in our minds, one of the meekest and mildest creatures on earth, the blood of that animal will save you from this uh, from this plague. And then He gives very specific instructions what to do with these lambs, how many to get, how to cook it, kill it, roast it eat it and put the blood on a doorpost. And we think, man, that Old Testament God is so primitive and so Stone Age. What am I supposed to do with that? And so that is a question that sticks out. What do you do with a story like this? You know, and and, you know, if you're like me and you grew up in the church, we kind of grew up hearing uh, this story and maybe even had the illustrations of the blood on the doorpost. But have you ever stopped and thought about familiar stories like this and thought to yourself, How weird is this story? Hey, guys, I'm coming to free you ultimately at last. But by the way, you might get caught up in the plague if you don't kill this animal and put its blood on your door. What do you do with a story like this? Where do we begin? Well, the idea of sacrifice was not new in the Bible. It wouldn't have been new uh, to this people. Go all the way back. Just one book because this is the second book of the Bible. But you go to Genesis 3 and by implication, there's sacrifice and blood there when we're told that God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness after their sin with the skins of animals. Okay, how do you get the skin of an animal? You have to kill it. Genesis 4, the Cain and Abel story, that whole story is kind of centered on the sacrifices that Cain and Abel were bringing to God. Though we had not seen or read any of God giving them any instructions on that. That's what that story is about. Genesis 6 through 9, we see Noah going on the ark and we're told specifically that he took animals for sacrifice in addition to the two by two. Genesis 15, we have Abraham Cutting animals in half and spreading them out, which actually would have been a common type of thing, if you can think like that, um, as he enters into a covenant with God in Genesis 15. So this idea of sacrifice is not necessarily new, but what we do have here, and why I hone in on it, is never before, obviously after this it will become a big deal, but never before until this point had there been so much emphasis on the blood. The blood is what is singled out here. Verse 13 there. The blood shall be a sign for you. When I see, not you, but when I see the blood, I will pass over. And so the shedding of blood through sacrifice then from this point forward would take a central role in the history of God's people. But there's also another aspect of the story here that kind of helps us fully understand what's going on here. And that's the idea of the firstborn. That the blood is shed for the firstborn on behalf of the firstborn. Now, there's something, you know, in our culture, we don't, firstborn doesn't really, you know, maybe you're, if you're the youngest or whatever, if you're not the firstborn, maybe your eldest sibling held that against you or was prideful about it. Or if you're a firstborn, maybe you're prideful about it. I don't know. Um, I guess I didn't like my brother for being the firstborn. But it's really not as big a deal to us as it was in the Old Testament times. You go back to Genesis Uh, In the story of Abraham, all Abraham wanted was a son. And that's what God promises him. It was a ginormous promise. I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation. And I'm going to make you into a great nation because I'm going to give you a son, even though you're old and even though your wife is barren. And so he does. And then we go to Genesis chapter 22. He has the son that God had promised him. And we read that God comes to him and says, Okay, now Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Now, if that isn't weird enough, if you read Abraham's story, what's also weird about it is that Abraham doesn't seem to doubt the command at all. Abraham's entire story, he had doubted. He had doubted God's promise and what he was supposed to do. But in this weirdest story of the Abraham narrative, he goes right along with it. And so this is what helps us understand it. First is that in the ancient Near East, people did not have individual aspirations. They had familial aspirations. Any goal or success that you aimed for in life was in the context of family. Family. This is completely opposite to how all of us Americans were raised. We're all raised, all of us, doesn't matter how big your family, for the most part, all of us are raised to leave our house at some point by ourselves and to go make a good life for ourselves and our future family. But back then, your every goal was for your family to succeed. And it worked in reverse too. If you uh, were shamed, if you did something that brought you shame or guilt, that would actually be imputed to your whole family. It would bring your whole family shame. This is what makes the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son such a compelling parable. Because what the sons did, they really shamed their father in what they did. But he loves them all the same. So in this culture, the foundation for success of the family future was the firstborn. The firstborn got two-thirds of the entire inheritance. And how many ever siblings he had after that? Got the rest to divide among themselves. The firstborn was it. And throughout the Old Testament, we find God telling his people that the firstborn is also special to him. So much so that he says that every firstborn living thing, everything that opens the womb first, belongs to me. That's what God says explicitly in the Old Testament. So much so that you go forward in Jewish religion, every year families would go and make offering to redeem the lives of their firstborn children. Every year. Okay, that's a lot. But think about it. Here's the thing about Genesis 22. Abraham understood this. That's why... He doesn't doubt when God commands. It It doesn't mean that it made sense to Abraham, but Abraham did understand that the firstborn belonged to God and it was God's to demand if God demanded it. Story actually doesn't make sense if there's not a real possibility that God would have let him carry it out. And just to put a little bow, we're not here to talk about Genesis 22, but just to give you a little conclusion on that, the author of Hebrews actually tells us that Abraham believed that even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, he knew God was still going to keep his promise. Exodus chapter 4, where's Ward? Ward's going to be preaching. On Exodus 4 in two weeks, we're going to go back to an obscure story where God does the same thing to Moses. Moses leaves Midian and he goes back to Egypt. And we're told that on the way, God met him to kill him. Like, okay, you call him and now you want to kill him. Then we read that his wife circumcises his son and smears the blood. There's blood again on Moses' feet. And God relents. Good luck with that, Ward. (laughs) It's a weird story, isn't it? But there's a key that we get in chapter 4. And this is what God tells Moses. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go. That he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill you your firstborn. So the message from the beginning for Pharaoh through Moses was, I am calling in the debt. And we talked about this last week. We're not going to go into it. Pharaoh had every opportunity to repent and to give God his firstborn, but he would not. And so, this is where we find ourselves with this play God calling in the debt against Pharaoh and against Egypt for his firstborn son, Israel. Genesis 22, go back to that story with Abraham, uh, Abraham, I, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. You have this heart wrenching part of the story where Isaac looks at his father and says, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham looks at him and says, God will provide for himself. The lamb. Abraham didn't know how he would do it, but we at least know that Abraham understood that God would have to reconcile the promise that he had made with a debt that had to be paid. God would have to reconcile the promise he had made with the debt that had to be paid, that Abraham understood existed. So in a nutshell, that is a lot. But that's the history of the blood. What about the meaning? How can this help us go on and get to understand the meaning of the blood here? This is all a bit extreme, right? Because we're still left going, okay, yeah, great. But what kind of primitive stone age God would expect us to believe this? Would expect us to believe that this is what sin requires for us to be in relationship with this God? Well, the Bible pretty consistently very consistently throughout the rest of its books says actually yes this is precisely what sin requires you know if you've missed that the bible has probably not made much sense to you it's pretty important at some point you and i are going to have to come to grips with the fact that god is far more offended and takes far more seriously our sin. Than we do. He is far more offended and he takes far more seriously our sin than we do. And very rightfully so, I might add, let's just take away, in a sense, if you can, separate Christianity from this for a second. Let's just think logically. If there exists a God, one God, who made everything, let's presuppose that together. You don't have to presuppose it's a Christian God. But suppose that there is a God who made everything, that without him, nothing exists. It logically follows that you owe that God, your creator, every single ounce of your being. Who you are, what you desire, what you do, what you say, what you aspire to, all of it. And you owe him that whether he told you or not. Whether he even revealed himself to you or not. Logically, I think you would agree it follows that if there is a God who made everything, then he gets to demand whatever he wants from what he's made. The thing about this story and this God and this faith is that he has revealed himself. And that he said that the very reason that he created and the very reason he created us and the very reason that he has done and willed and ordained anything and everything is so that we can know him. And so we can be what he created us to be. And In the realm of sin and blood and sacrifice, he tells us things like the wages of sin is death. Nothing short of it. He tells us things like whoever keeps the whole law, every single bit of it, but fails at one point, literally a point, an iota, has failed the whole thing. He tells us these things. And it's unsettling. It's unsettling. Just like the plagues last week. I'm not going to say it's supposed to make sense. It's unsettling. But he tells us. He reveals it to us. He teaches us. He continually brings us back to it. And so there's something that Tim Keller, pastor at Redeemer in Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, he wrote a book called The Reason for God. It's an amazing book. I really encourage you to read it. There's something that he takes up in The Reason for God is a common objection to Christianity. Or at least the way that I'm about to give you Christianity. Common objection is, why can't God just forgive? Why the bloody mess? Why the bloody mess in the Old Testament with all the animals? Why the bloody mess with this guy named Jesus? Why is this blood thing supposed to cleanse me and make me right? But therein lies, and this is where Keller goes, he says, therein lies an inherent under, misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. Just in plain logical terms, what is forgiveness? And this is how he says it. Real forgiveness, any kind of forgiveness, we're not just talking about spiritual God forgiveness, any kind of forgiveness, real forgiveness is costly suffering. You ever thought of it like that? Real forgiveness is costly suffering. Well, that doesn't sound so great, does it? What does he mean? I'm going to try to give a picture here in a minute of what that means. But before that, I want you to ask yourself, is this why it's been so hard for you in your life, maybe in your Christian walk or in life with other people? Why it's been so hard for you to receive forgiveness? Because you constantly find yourself trying to figure out ways to pay it back or pay it forward as if the forgiveness depends on it. Because you just can't escape this feeling, right? That a debt has to be paid. You can't escape that feeling. Forgiveness is awkward. When you've really wronged someone and they forgive you, it's hard to believe. Because you feel the weight of the burden and the debt that has to be paid. You feel it. For others of you, is this why you've found forgiveness hard to give? Because you know, like I bring this up very often. There are some of you in this room that have experienced real victimhood. You've been wronged in real and deep ways, and you know it. And you've been burdened probably by this idea of Christian forgiveness that you're supposed to forgive best thing I ever heard this is a side note best thing I ever heard a counselor say was you can't forgive somebody who didn't ask for it that's a whole other sermon but anyway I just derailed the whole sermon I don't know why I said that but I just want to throw that out there but some of you have truly been victims and you feel burdened by maybe the call to forgive because you just understand like the injury the debt cannot be forgotten you see I used a different word there forgive forget not the same thing And you just can't escape this feeling that there's still a debt that has to be paid. You're right. You're right. Picture this. This is the same illustration that Keller uses in his book. Picture that you, imagine that you wipe out somebody's fence with your car. There's only two things that can happen. One, they make you pay for the damage that you've done. Or two, they forgive you. Which means you don't pay for the damage done but somebody still has to pay for it do they not this is forgiveness it's a simple general analogy but it's that's forgiveness someone has to pay the debt in both cases and so for those of you who find forgiveness hard to receive it's because you're having trouble believing that the debt has truly been paid That is what forgiveness is. If someone has forgiven you, they've said the debt is paid. They didn't say the debt went away. They're just saying, I don't expect you to pay it. For those of you who have found forgiveness hard to give because you still carry this grief in you, of course you carry the grief with you still. Because to forgive someone who wronged you is saying, I'm not going to make you pay for it. But you're paying for it. Because you were wronged. And that's worth grieving. Again, that opens a rabbit trail of a whole nother sermon, but I got to move on here. There's two ways that we see this in our story, that the debt has to be paid. The first one is this. Did you notice that the Israelites are just as liable to this plague as the Egyptians? That's the whole point. In plagues four through nine, if you read through those plagues, you'll see that God himself separates Israel from the effects of each plague. And the the effects of the plagues don't affect them because God keeps it from affecting them. But did you see what happened here? Here they're given instructions. If you don't want this plague to affect you, you need to do what I tell you. So the Israels, to avoid the effects of this plague, the Israelites have to take an active part. They have to take a stand. They have to exercise faith. Again, look at verse 13. God doesn't say, when I see you, I will pass over. When I see you, my precious children. When I see you, my precious Hebrews. When I see you, that special people in all the earth, because you're so great. No. When I see the blood, that's all I need. I will pass over. It was only because of blood. I want you to imagine that night two Jewish households, two Hebrew households. In one household, you have a son shivering in fear over the story that he's just heard about what they're doing and wondering to himself, as cries go up in Egypt, am I next? In another house, there's another son that just gets it. He understands what's happening. And so he sits confidently at the table as his father tells the story and the instructions of what's happening this night. Both of them survive. Why? Because of the blood. And that's it. Because of the blood. Which shows us a second thing about the blood, the meaning of the blood in the story, that it shows us that the lamb was a substitute It took the place of the firstborn of those households. You look at verse 30. There was not a house that someone was not dead. In a sense, this was true for every Hebrew household as well. In every household in this entire land on that night, in that morning, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. And there were Hebrew sons looking into a fire that morning saying, the only reason that wasn't me is because it was that lamb. Why? Because it's about the blood. And that's it. The history of the blood, the meaning of the blood, wrapped us up with the future of the blood because it's interesting this is why I wanted to read as much of chapter 12 as we did that it's more than just the plague it's also the institution of the Passover because you see these meticulous repetitions of that Passover instructions and it shows us something it's not just about regulations it's not just those boring Old Testament hey this is how you do it um, it's not a meal merely for one historical moment it is very clear through these instructions that this is to be a lasting ordinance it's a meal with a future orientation it's a meal that points them where they're headed eat this meal with your belt fastened and your sandals tied and be ready to go because after this you cannot stay you will be on your way This event is so huge. You see there in verse 2. This event is so huge that it now marks a new year on the calendar from now on. This is going to be the first month of the year from now on. A constant reminder of what God has done so that we would look at what he continues to do and what he's promised to do in the future. That was the purpose of this meal. Now, you see the Jesus juke I'm going for here, right? Fast forward. Fast forward some 1,500 years. We have Jesus with his disciples in Luke chapter 22, doing the very thing that this passage spells out, sharing Passover together. And as was the custom of the day, since Jesus was the host, he would have been the one to stand up and explain what they were doing. And we have that recorded for us when Jesus stands up, In the traditional Passover Seder, it would have been said, This is the bread of our affliction. But what does Jesus say? This is my body given for you. This is the bread of my affliction. What are the three elements of the Passover? When you read this passage, what are the three elements? There's bread. There's wine, and there's a lamb. But when you read the gospel accounts of the Lord's Supper, there is something glaringly absent. There's no lamb. There's bread. There's wine. But there's no lamb on the table. Why? Because the lamb was sitting at the table. What John the Baptist himself told his own disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus deliberately removes the Lamb at the Last Supper. Why? Because what he's saying and what the whole Old Testament was saying, what even Exodus chapter 12 was saying, Jesus was saying, my death, is the central event that all of history has been leading toward. And my death is going to be the hinge point upon which all of history turns on. Because you still have a debt of sin on you and I am going to pay it and remove it once and for all. The thing, funny thing is, again, you read through the Gospels, Jesus had not kept this a secret. He had told his disciples over and over again. One instance, Mark ten forty-five. he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so we have this picture of Jesus, the firstborn of God, the firstborn of all creation, the one on whom God's eternal favor eternally has rested and will rest. But whereas in the Old Testament, the firstborn was redeemed through a substitute, now we're told that the firstborn is the substitute. He is the means. Of redemption, And so we go back to all the stories. Just like Abraham took his son on a mountain. We find God himself taking his own son up on a hill outside of the city. But this time there is no one to yell stop. There's only mouths to egg it on. This time there's no angel to stop the knife. But the nails go through. This time... It would not stop It would be followed through And you look at verse 6 of chapter 12 You shall kill your lambs at twilight Is it any coincidence That the gospels tell us That Jesus breathed his last At twilight What do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? Well I just want to leave you with this. I want to tell you what someone told me because they loved me and because I love you. There's a debt hanging over all of you. And the only way that it is paid is by blood. It is what we are told over and over and over again. There is no other way. And you see, the Passover, why it becomes this lasting central ritual, is for generations it would point the people to the fact that God provided a lamb. A constant reminder that in this story, if it's our story, in this story, life only comes from death. A death of a lamb, salvation was actually accomplished. Blood smeared on the doors as a visible token that a life had been laid down in that place. Again, it's not just supposed to make sense, but that's a story. Have you ever wondered? The first time I heard this, it blew my mind, so I hope it does the same for you. Have you ever wondered about the fact Jesus nowhere ever told us or asked us to commemorate his birth? We do it, and it's a great thing. The incarnation is a wonderful thing. Never told us to commemorate his birth. Jesus never told us to commemorate his resurrection, as wonderful as that is. Jesus explicitly commanded and gave instructions for us to continually and often commemorate his death through a meal, through the supper. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is this morbid fascination that we have? There's nothing neat about this story. It's messy. Flannery O'Connor, the great short story writer, she was once asked if she could sum up one of her short stories uh, in a nutshell. And she responded to the person that asked the question, if I could put my story in a nutshell, I wouldn't have had to write the story. Brilliant and witty, and I'm not witty like that. This story right here in the chapters that follow it, in the books that follow it, in the centuries that follow it, in the millennia that follow it, is messy. Because what we're told is that we have a God that has chosen to love and to redeem and even to use messy, broken people. And for God to love messy, broken people, what we are told is there will be blood. But you see, the Lord's Supper, you know, the early Christians were accused of being cannibals for eating flesh and drinking blood. The Lord's Supper points not only to what God has done in Christ, but what he continues to do until he comes again in glory. Because it points us to a future meal. An end time banquet in which we will all celebrate the final victory of whom? A slain and risen lamb. Lamb. So the question for all of us is: Is your story messy? Would you hear tonight that that's okay? This story is messy too. And as far as we can tell, that mess is not ending anytime soon. But there's a blood that flows, that heals, that cleanses, that renews, and restores. And it was poured out for many. It's an invitation for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we can't pretend to make complete sense of all the significance of these events. But if there's one thing we do understand is that we are a mess. Would you heal us? Would you make us new, we pray, in the power and in the name of the blood of Jesus. Amen.